You're listening to the Galatians Spying Out Our Liberty in Christ series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Camp is over. It's been a crazy but wonderful week of camp this past week. We had, as they said, 94 kids at camp this week, which is about 20 more than we've ever had in the past. And it's a great opportunity. I think at the camp we had like two or three kids that are from our church, which means there's over 90 kids there that are not from our church. Now, some are from other churches, but some are never go to church. And they get to hear the gospel five times throughout the week and then a sixth time on Friday when pastor gives a recap for all the parents. And it's just a, a wonderful thing. And it was a very busy week, and there were times throughout the week where I'm trying to just cram in time to study that I thought, and, and if you've ever prepared a message, you know this is how it goes. I thought, is this part really worth it? You know, is the time I'm putting into this, is, would it be better spent, you know, at the camp or doing something else, trying to get ready for something else? Um, and as you prepare a message, you, you'd realize that there are times that you're, you're looking at the truths and that they're convicting you and realizing just how powerful they are. And you think, this is the sermon that's just going to rock this church. I mean, it, people are going to be on fire when they leave here. And then there are other times where you, you feel like, oh, I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea how this is going to come off. I have no idea if this will make any impact on anybody's life. And I tell you that because that, I had that feeling a little bit this week. And then while Pastor was praying this morning, he spoke about how God uses the foolishness of preaching. And it is. It's a silly thing. And you think about it. I mean, what am, what am I doing up in front of you telling you what the Bible says? You can read it for yourself. You can study it for yourself. I mean, why does God do it this way? The answer is, I don't know. But that's what he's decided to do. And he uses the preaching of his word to change our hearts and to change our souls. And so, as we listen this, this evening, I pray that it would be our heart's desire not to just put in time and, and just do our Sunday night thing, but to really search the word of God and see what God has for us. This evening, Paul is addressing the Galatians once again, and and he's addressing specifically their misguided effort to mature by going back to the law. And so they believed, for some reason, because they had these false teachers come and teach them, that if they wanted to really be Christians, if they wanted to really grow, then they needed to go back to the law, and they needed to, to keep all of the ordinances of the law. And it was misguided. And it reminded me of the story of, of this pilot who gets on the intercom mid-flight, and he says, folks, I have some good news and I have some bad news. The bad news is that our navigator lost our bearings about an hour ago. We have no idea where we're going. The good news is we're making great time. And the truth is what was going on here is that they were moving rapidly. They were doing all these things but they were going the wrong direction. And in fact, instead of maturing in their Christian life, they were regressing. They were going back. They were becoming more and more like children because they were becoming more and more legalistic. And so it's, it's an essential thing for us to understand that, yes, we need effort in our Christian life, and yes, we have direction, but we need to get our direction from the Word of God. It's not just whatever we decide it should be. It's not just whatever rules we decide we should keep. Okay? Our direction, like the psalmist said, is it's to pant after God. It's to pursue God. And so that is what Paul is telling them this evening. For this passage, we'll study what I believe Paul's thesis would be, is that you were once slaves, and now you are sons. So it's ridiculous to keep acting like slaves. You were slaves, now you're sons. 
sons of God, how foolish would it be to continue to act like a slave? That's what exactly what he's going to tell them this evening. So let's pray, and then we'll get into our passage. Father, I thank you that you use uh, the foolishness of preaching to speak to hearts. And Lord, I thank you that I have something so much greater than my wits or my intelligence um, to preach from this evening, Lord, that, that those things would accomplish nothing, but we have the word of God to look to. So God, I pray that each one of us would examine our hearts, um, compare it to uh, where we're at, what the word of God says, where we should be going. And Lord, I pray that as we examine, that we would rid the aspects of our lives that are legalistic, that are all about rules, and that, Lord, we would pursue Jesus Christ, that we would mature in the gospel and not leave it, Lord, and not think that we are at the point of moving on. We love you, Father. We thank you for this word tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So far, we've been in the book of Galatians for about 11 weeks or so, and I felt as though there's been so many breaks that every single time I get up to preach again, I need to recap the book and and figure out where we're at again. And and part of that is a good thing because Paul is making a very similar argument, almost the same argument the entire book, at least in the entire four chapters for sure. And so it's almost a good thing that we get these little breaks so we can, you know, get something else, do communion or do a picnic or whatever it, it is, and then get back into it the following week. But... Paul spends a lot of time on this for a reason, because it is essentially important for our lives. And so thus far, what Paul has done is he's defended his message and his apostleship. He said, it's not my message, it's not my idea, it's from God, it's from the authority of God. God is one that made me apostle, so if you're going to reject the gospel I gave you, you're not rejecting Paul's message, you're rejecting God's message. Then he's gone on to make it clear that there is, in fact, only one gospel, that they had begun following this, this thing that they thought was kind of like a new or better gospel, but it was no gospel at all. He demonstrated that all the apostles, all the other apostles, agree with him. And so if they were to say, well, that's not what the apostles in Jerusalem teach, he says, no, in fact, I've been there, and that is what they teach. And they agree. Now, that doesn't make it right. What makes it right is that it's from God. But God spoke to them as well. They have the same gospel. And then he records this story about Peter, where Peter failed in his life for a time when when he actually started going against what the gospel said and he told it because i think that probably the galatian church had heard about this story and said well look what peter did and paul's saying yeah what peter did i I addressed it i rebuked him and he's now made it right and he's he's going the right direction again so paul is just taking this time to make sure that the galatians get that this is this is god's message god's gospel and it's affirmed by god's men Now in in chapters 3 and 4, he is launched into a full-scale doctrinal attack against justification through the law. Saying it's not through the law at all. You're not justified, you're not made right with God through the law, and you are not going to be sanctified by the law. Those things don't happen. You don't grow and mature in Christ by the thing that couldn't save you in the first place. So chapter 3 he begins, and and he's very harsh with them. Chapter 3 verse 1 says, O foolish Galatians, Who hath bewitched you? Who's tricked you? Who's pulled the wool over your eyes that you think that you should not obey the truth of Christ? Who's bewitched you? And then verse 3, he says, are you you so foolish? Are you so stupid? What's going on, guys? Why don't you get this? You're acting so immature. And so he says, look, think of your own experience. Remember how you got saved? You got saved because it was the Spirit of God that did a work in your life that he brought you back to life that now you have the Holy Spirit, 
does it make sense to you that the law that only condemned you prior to that, now you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, that you should go back to the law and neglect the Spirit that's been given to you? No, you're not going to be perfected by the law if it can never perfect you before. You, you will grow and mature and become complete by the Spirit that's now in you. And then he says, well, think about Abraham. What happened with Abraham? And they would probably look at Abraham and say, no, Abraham's the father of our faith, and so we're just trying to be like him. Oh, yeah? Well, you know what he was like? Abraham was saved, the Bible says, because he believed God, it was accounted unto him for righteousness. It was his belief that made him righteous. Now, afterwards, that belief translated to walking in faith. And so you can see evidence of that belief all throughout his life. But it was the the faith that saved him. And he says, Abraham was not circumcised until about 15 years after, after he was justified. So it's not circumcision that justified him. And the law wasn't given until 430 years after. And so it's not the law that justified him. He's making this, this ironclad case. He goes on and he reads some Old Testament verses that the law only brings a curse. That the just shall live by faith. And then he compares the law with the promise the law that only brings a curse, that only condemns, and the promise of God that brings salvation. And he says, listen, the, the, the law of God cannot disannul the promise of God. God's promise that would be revealed in the Son, it, it cannot disannul it, it cannot change it, it cannot destroy it. Hey, the promise came first, the promise is greater. So then he concludes with the, the fact that Scripture concludes that we are all under sin, and the purpose of the law is never to save us, but it's to be our schoolmaster or our pedagogos. Remember that from a couple weeks ago? Our pedagogos that would lead us to Christ. It's this, this strict disciplinarian that is there all the time saying, you did that wrong, and you did that wrong, and you, you need to be corrected in this area, and in this area, and in this area. And finally, you lift up your hands and go, I can't do it. You realize that you can't do it in yourself, and you realize that you need a Savior. And so then the promise becomes so much more wonderfully to you because you realize that without the promise, you have nothing. Without the promise, you're completely hopeless. The purpose of the law was to lead them to the promise. Now what I want to do in our time tonight is to re- revisit the last three verses in chapter 3 and then move on to the first 11 verses in chapter 4. And what we'll find here is Paul is going to be dealing with from chapter 3, verse 26, until 4, verse 7, with the benefits of the promise. So if you have the promise of God, these are the benefits that come along with it. We'll begin reading in chapter 3, verse 26. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That you've become the children of God, not by good works, not because you were religious, not because you were doing something special that nobody else was doing. It's because of faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you became children of God. Now, people might stop and say, well, isn't God the father of all? And I guess in one sense you could say that's true. He is creatively the father of all. He he is the father of all people, just like he's the father of all angels and all demons. He created them, and so he's the father in that sense. But redemptively, he is only the father of those who believe. That's, that, there's a huge difference between that. That means, in one sense, he's the creator of demons and all unsaved. And in the other sense, he's, he has, he's the, the father of those who have trusted in him. This, this 
true father, loving father. Now you say, well, does that mean that God doesn't love all people? No, it doesn't mean that. Now there is, there is a different relationship that God has between those that know him, those that are saved, and those that, don't, that are not saved. Okay? Those that are not saved are under his wrath. Those that are not saved are under his just condemnation because they've broken God's law. Those that know, know Christ as Savior, they're in Christ. And so they're his adopted son. We'll talk about that a lot tonight. But there is a, a huge difference between those two things. So does God love those who are not saved? Well, absolutely he loves those that are not saved. That's why he sent Jesus to save them. He saw them in their sin. He saw them even as enemies of God. He sent his son to die in their place. And so he loves them and his desire, his longing for them, is that they will come to know Christ and be redemptive children of God. But until we put our faith in Christ, then we're, we stand at odds with him. He sent his son to save you and he says, take my free gift of salvation. Repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ. And when we choose not to do that, we choose to reject God and, and remain his enemy. And so he's trying to make it very clear here that Faith, it's faith that makes you a believer. It, it's faith that makes you a believer. It's, it's faith that makes you a child of God. It's belief that makes you a child of God. It is not keeping the law. It is not doing good things. It's not your church or your religion. He moves on in verse 28. So we, we are now in Christ. We're children of God. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There, not, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Paul is here taking a shot at the Jewish pride. Because Jews would, took pride in their culture. that They were Jews and not Greeks. And he says, now there's no more Jews or Greeks. And then they would take pride in their sex. And he says, there's neither male nor female. And he'd take pride in their, their freedom. And he says, well, there's neither slave nor free. He's saying, listen, there, there's no more boundaries like that. And it's not, it's not like Paul's removing boundaries to give them something worse. Like, okay, fine, we won't be the better ones, we'll just be equal. What he's saying is, now you get to be a son of God. That is so much better than being a male who is a Jew who is free. How much better to be a child, a son of God. Now, in some translations they change where it says son of God and they make it child of God, but that's actually missing the point. Okay, when, when he, we are all children of God. Those who know Christ are children of God, but we are all also sons of God. And that's speaking about our legal standing. And so for them, it was the son who would be heir to whatever the father owned. And so he says, you are a son of God, meaning you are an heir. It's, it's not like trying to demune women or anything because we're also the bride of Christ. Okay, so, so Paul uses these different analogies, and God uses these analogies to help us understand things. And here he's trying to help us understand that not only are you his children, you can call him father, but you are his legal adopted sons, meaning you have, you have a kingdom to inherit. It's an incredible truth. So verse 29 says, And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's only in Christ that you are an heir. So he's talking about the blessings, and now in chapter 4, he's going to give us an analogy that helps us understand this. So chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, 
but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. This is an analogy that would make a lot of sense if you understood Roman culture. You're living back then. And I think we kind of get the idea already, but he says, the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant. Okay? Now, in Roman culture, children were not thought of very highly. They had no rights and very little significance. And so what you would do with your children is you would basically take your children, you'd pass them on to one of your slaves, and have your slaves raise them. That would be the pedagogos. It would raise them, and then they would be brought to school, and teachers would teach them, and you would really have not a whole lot to do with your children because they didn't have very much significance, very much importance. And so what he's saying is here is that when these, these children who are eventually going to be heirs to the kingdom are children, you look at them and you say, there's no difference between slaves and between children. And so at, at some point when you look at these, all these people, you have no idea, are they slaves? Are they children? I don't know. it. They're in the same boat. But... In verse 3, he says, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. He says, At one point, you were just like those children, just like those slaves. And God, in the, when the fullness of time has come, sent his son to redeem you. And so now, there's a difference between the slaves and the children. Now, there's, there's, there's people who are very clearly slaves and in bondage to the law, and there are people who, now that the fullness of time has come, who are clearly sons of God. It says in verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now that you are sons of God, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, the spirit of Christ that's inside of you, crying, Abba, Father. I love how the whole trinity is included in this this picture here. That God has sent forth the spirit of Christ to come into your heart so you can cry, Abba, Father. Hey, Abba, Father is such a wonderful, endearing term, isn't it? I mean, here... some people want to say it's like, it's like daddy. And I, I, get, I get what they're saying. You don't want to bring it too low like, hey, daddy. You know, but it's, it's like, you're my dear father. It's this... When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cried, Abba, Father. So he's in the torment. He's about to take the, the, the sins of the world on his shoulders. He says, Abba, Father, if there's any way this cup can pass for me, please let it pass. That's, that's how Jesus refers to his, his heavenly Father. And now, because we're in Christ, we have the same right to come before God and say, Dear Father, Dear Dad, Daddy. In this wonderful way, we can come to God as our intimate, close Father who loves us. Because we have the Spirit inside of us. And so, we look at these verses. Sorry, we haven't got to verse 7 yet. It says, wherefore, this is the, just the conclusion of this whole thing, wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now that you, you have the Spirit, now that you're in Christ, now that you can go straight to God as your heavenly Father, you, it, you're no more a slave. You're no more a slave. You're a son. And what is it that a son gets? everything that the Father has. 
the Bible says that we're an heir of God. When you come to Jesus Christ, you get, above anything else, God. And there's nothing greater. You get God's promises, you get God's spirit, you get God eternally. We get God. It's unfortunate that more people would come to Christ if they got a thousand bucks. No? I mean, people would, you know, do the prayer, say the prayer, or, or maybe even show up at church every once in a while if they were given some kind of temporal reward. And we get God now and eternally, and we're looking for more. Okay, but what prayers are going to answer for me? God, how are you going to make my life better? No, you got, you got God. He's yours. He's in you. Do you realize that God, this is, this is how God works with his son, okay? When he sent his son, his son was born in a stable, in a manger, from where the animals eat. That's where he was laid. That was his crib. And then he lived a poor life. And then he was mocked throughout his ministry. And eventually he was stripped naked and crucified on a cross. And so that, that's how God is dealing with his sons this side of heaven. Now, glory is completely different. Eternal life is completely different. But it's so ridiculous that when we come to God, we're like, okay, what are all the benefits? God, line up for me like what you're going to do for me in my life so that I, I can figure out whether it was worth it. No, no, no. You just got God. You got him eternally. You have him inside of you. All of, all of the rest of the stuff is just, it's bonus, it's... It's, but it's ridiculous to really bank on. It's, it's silly to focus on. In our lives, why don't we focus on the greatest benefit? I mean, eternal life with our Heavenly Father. The relationship that we now have with Him, that at once we were enemies and now we're reconciled, now we're adopted children. It's a wonderful thing. So, in light of all that, in light of everything Paul just said, Paul is now going to say, here's the problem with you folks. In verse 8. How be it then, when you, knew, when you knew not God, you did service unto them which were by nature no gods. And so at one point, you didn't know God, and so you served all of those things, you were slaves to those, those things that were not gods. Okay? So, so you served yourself, you were a slave to yourself, you were a slave to your fleshly desires, you were a slave to money, you were a slave to sex. For them, they were slaves to different idols. Okay? They, they had the God of the sky, and the God of the moon, and the God of the son, and, and all of these gods that they worshipped. We are born to be slaves, and he's saying at some point before you knew God, you were slaves to all of these things. Some of them, you were slaves to the law. And so he says, at one point you weren't. You didn't know God. I get it. You were serving something because you were created to be a slave. You were serving. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn you again into the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? I, I can guarantee that Paul, when he wrote that, he was, he was writing with more emotion than probably I just read it with. How after you have known God, now you know God. And then he doesn't even give them that. He says, wait, now that God knows you. And he's just making the point that's like, hey, it's not even anything that you did to, to make sure that you were in this right standing with God. Now God knows you. And it tells you that you cannot come to know God your own way. If you don't know God the way God has told you to know him, then he doesn't know you. Right? And so what he's saying is, 
now that, that God knows you, now that you have this father-son relationship, now that you're heirs to the kingdom, now you have the spirit inside of you, now that everything is so wonderful, so much greater, so you have eternal life, why would you ever turn to the weak and the beggarly elements? And the, the word weak, it simply means um, impotent, powerless. These things were powerless. They did nothing ever for you. They can never satisfy. They can never redeem. They can never help you in any way, shape, or form. Why would you ever turn back to those things again? The beggarly elements. The idea is, is actually just a beggar. It's like any good thing they can get, they have to beg for it. Why would you ever turn to something like that when you have God? You have a relationship with God. Okay? And, and you say, this sounds crazy, I would never do something so silly, so stupid. We, we would never want to turn away from, from God and turn back to the weak and beggarly elements. We wouldn't do that, right? No, definitely not. Wait till he tells us in verse 10, though, what he's talking about. He says, you observe days and months and times and years. What does that mean that they were doing? Okay, for a Jew, what would it mean to observe days and months and times and years? It means that they were keeping religious festivals and thinking that somehow that helped them in their maturity in Christ, in their relationship with God. That doesn't sound so bad, right? I mean, he, he's basically saying, you are, before you worshipped false gods, you worshipped devils, you worshipped yourself, you worshipped all kinds of terrible things, and now you're going back to do the exact same thing, and the reason you're doing it is because you're thinking that the religious things that you're doing are meriting any kind of favor for you in God's eyes that you are earning your salvation in any way. And the reason this is so powerful for us is because we have this natural inclination just to always want to earn it. And so if a false teacher comes and says, hey, listen, you can earn God's favor. You can make God so happy with you and, and earn some of what he's given you. And we say, all right, I'll do it. Just sign me up. What do I, what do, I do? Okay, I just observe times and months. Okay, I just have to hmm, come to an evening service. Now listen, I'm, Coming to an evening service, I think, is a good thing. I like them, all right? But if you come to an evening service because you think somehow this is meriting God's favor for you, then right now, the Bible says you are actually worshiping the weak and beggarly elements. Isn't that, isn't that a scary thought? That you're here in church and you could actually be worshiping something other than God just by being here in church because you think being here in church has something to do with making you right in God's eyes. Okay? Now, I think church is a great way to mature, to grow in Christ. And, and, and if we're pursuing Christ, and in our pursuit in Christ, we decide to come to an evening service or to come to a morning service or to come to, to, to pick up our Bible and read it and to pray, then we're doing exactly what we're called to do. Okay? We are supposed to pursue Christ in the avenues that he's given us to. And so it's good. But as soon as we start keeping any kind of law and thinking that makes us good, then we're worshiping a false god. It's a big deal. Paul's, Paul's being very serious with the Galatians because what they're doing when they're just being religious, when they're, when they're adding their works to their faith in Christ, it's a huge problem. So verse 11, he says, I am afraid of you lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Listen, Galatian church, I'm, I'm scared. When I went to you, every place I went, I was either tortured or almost killed. 
when he was in Galatia, he visited these cities. He started these four churches, and in every place, he was kicked out of the city or he was killed. They stoned him and left him for dead. I mean, he had a rough time there. And I'm afraid that all of what I did there is just in vain, that it was just a waste of time. Because if, if you're going to go back to keep your religious practices and think that, that somehow keeping the law of the Jews or keeping whatever you used to do is going to make you right with God, you're so, you're so foolish. You've been duped. And all of my labor was in vain. So Paul, is, he's scared for these people. And unfortunately, this problem in the human heart hasn't gone away since then. Unfortunately, this is kind of how we tend to default. That we tend to go back to doing something to merit our favor with God. So, I have two points of application tonight, and then we'll be finished. And they're very, very simple. The first one is this. It is better to be a son than a slave. It's better to be a son than a slave. All people are one of two things. You are a son or you are a slave. That's what the Bible says. Slavery is bondage to an idol, bondage to your flesh, bondage to something other than God. And it means we have absolutely no access to God now and forever. Eternal separation from God. That's what slavery is. Adoption as a child of God, being a son of God, means that you are now an heir of God, an heir of God's kingdom, that you're a joint heir with Christ, that you are a recipient of the Spirit of God living inside of you, helping you, molding you, grow you, that you have the ability to go to Jehovah God who is all-powerful and creator of all things and sustainer of all things, that, that he's, he's greater than our minds can ever, ever imagine. Even, even if we tried to make God bigger, then he is every moment of every day from this point forward. We would never get to the greatness and the bigness and the, the awesomeness of God. And he is now your father. And you can come to him and cry, Abba, Father. I mean, that's what you get as a son. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Galatians 3.26, For we are children of God by faith, in Jesus Christ. Listen, it's better to be a son than a slave. And, and the point here is this. You are, all of these Galatians, all these people here, Paul's problem with them is that they're so religious and that they have no relationship with Christ. That they're pursuing good works instead of Jesus. All right? That means that you can be here tonight and you can be doing all the right things and when we look at you, you can look really good. And if you don't have that relationship with Christ, you are still a slave. Just like the demoniac down the street. Just like, just like everybody that's not, not a son. Just because you have a pretty outside doesn't mean that it's, you're right on the inside. And so if you're not a son tonight, don't worry about how it looks on the outside. Get that right. Come to Christ and have him save you. Have him adopt you as his child for real. So it's better to be a son than a slave. The second point, equally simple, is that it's ridiculous for sons to act like slaves. I mean, I know you're probably thinking, why did you come up here and tell us this? This is so obvious. Anybody, a two-year-old could read this text. I don't know if a two-year-old can read, but a eight-year-old can read this text and be like, yeah, I think this is what it means. It's ridiculous to be a son and to act like a slave. But it's so true. 
And we, we get fooled by it all the time. Verse 8, you used to be in bondage to false gods. You used to be bound to the law. So what are you doing? Verse 9, what possible reason is there to ever go back to being in the bondage you were in before? Paul's telling these people because, because that's where we tend to go. And it's so foolish. It's so ridiculous. You know the story of the prodigal son? One of the greatest stories. Luke chapter 15, greatest stories in the Bible. Jesus tells this parable, and it's about these two sons, and the one son decides that he wants all of his inheritance right away. And so he takes his inheritance, and then he leaves his father's house, and he leaves the protection that he has there, and he has all this money, and he goes and he wastes it in riotous living. He just, he just does whatever he wants to do. He spends all of his money on girls and, and on whatever he, partying, whatever he wants to do. And then he runs out of money. Okay? And so he runs out of money, and he gets a job feeding pigs. As a Jew, this would be like about the worst thing you could possibly do. And so about before he's ready to eat the pig's food, he decides he's going to go back and just beg his father if there's any chance he could be a slave in his father's house. Because he knows at least slaves get treated better than he is right now. And so he, go, he goes back and his father runs out to him. And he, he kisses him. He hugs him. And he takes his ring and he puts it on his finger. And then he tells his servants to go slay the fatted calf. And they're going to have this wonderful feast, this wonderful party, because the son that had gone is now returned, is home. That his son is home. See, the boy came back just to be a slave, right? And he's now a son. And he's loved, and he's welcomed, and he's accepted, and he's got the ring, and he's got, the, he's got everything that comes with being a son back. And here are these people who have come back and they became sons. And now the reaction is to say, I'm going to just be a slave. I'm going to act like a slave. I know that you said I'm a son, but I want to live the slavery life for a while. You know when you do that, when, when we come to God and he says, I want this intimate relationship with you, I want you to, to love me, and out of your love, it, it, your life will change, and I'll put my spirit inside of you, and so as the spirit works in your life, the fruit of the spirit will be evident in your life. This is God's plan for our growth, and instead we say, oh no, God, I'm good. You keep that stuff to yourself. I'm going to just take your word and come up with the convictions that I think I should live by, and then I'm going to checkmark mark all my boxes, and that's how I'm going to live my Christian life. When we do it that way, we've just said, God, I don't want to be a son. I'm good keep staying a slave. Okay? Now, God is going to grow you, and your life is going to change if you decide to be a son. That has to happen as a son. When the, when the prodigal son decided to leave his father and go waste his life on riotous living, he, he said, I'm leaving as a son. I'm not a son. I want, I want it all. I'm done comes back as a slave and the father makes him a son, it it changes your life. But when we tell God that we're going to be a slave, whether, I know we never actually would do it, but when we start acting that way, we reject the father's words that we're now his son. We reject the father's desire to have a relationship with us and to grow us because we're looking at him and looking at Christ and looking at the cross and just growing that way. We reject the father's nature because God is trying to put his nature in you through the Spirit, and now we're going back to our fleshly nature because the only way you can try and keep the law is through your flesh. And so we're rejecting his nature in us. We're rejecting the Father's forgiveness of us. You know, it's like we don't believe, like, oh, God, I know you said you forgive my past sins, but you could never forgive anything going forward, so I need to try and make myself perfect. 
That's not it. You're rejecting the Father's gifts to you, and ultimately, you're rejecting the Father's love. It's so foolish. Why would we ever become a son and then go back to acting like a slave? I can't imagine if one of my kids decided that rather than being my, my son or daughter, that they'd rather be a slave of somebody else. I mean, what hurts you more than that? Don't want that anymore, Dad. You know, I'm just going to serve somebody else. And I want to just show my love to them and, and do everything I can to be close with them. And they just, I got I to gotta by myself. I can't give anything to my children compared to what we've been already given by God. Why would his children ever, ever move away from, from acting like a son? Do you remember what it looked like to reject God's love and to act like a slave instead of a son? It looked like just being religious on the outside when there's not no real relationship on the inside. It looked like pursuing works rather than pursuing Christ. This is, this is a battle for all of us. I think many times what happens is people are in church for some years, and all of a sudden you realize that there is a shell on the outside, you know, the shell of Christianity on the outside, good looks on the outside, and on the inside there's just dead man's bones. There's nothing going on. And that's what happens when we decide to do it in our flesh. As a child, we have access to God's throne. We don't pray. We have his spirit indwelling, empowering, guiding, and comforting us. But we turn back to rituals and religion and schedules and just such an impersonal relationship with God. Like, I do A, B, and C, and that's it. And we have his spirit inside of us. We are free of guilt and shame. We've been forgiven by the cross, but instead we remain in bondage to our past mistakes. We're a son. We've been forgiven. So act like it. Slaves follow rules, but slaves don't love and honor and obey joyfully. And that's what we're called to do. Here's my plea tonight. Number one, determine whether you're a son or a slave. Okay? Know that. If you don't know anything else, know that. Are you a son who knows God as your father? In fact, even, even better, does he know you as his child? And if you are, then determine if you are a son, you are going to act like it. You're going to pursue him. You're going to pursue a relationship with him. You're going to allow the spirit of God to make changes in your life as the word of God teaches you. You're not going to just pursue rules and regulations and, your, and whatever convictions that you made up. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not preaching against having convictions. I'm not saying that, that Christians shouldn't be moral. That's not it at all. But any time that our, our morality takes precedence over our relationship, messed up big time. Okay? Your morality doesn't make you right with God. Your morality is a byproduct of your relationship with God. And whenever it's anything other than that, it's a big problem. So, if you're a son, act like it. Warren Wearsby said that, of the Galatians that they were giving up the power of the gospel for the weakness of the law and the wealth of the gospel for the poverty of the law. How foolish to do. Pursue God. 
believe that you are truly his son. And then let your life be an outflow of that. We've been redeemed by Christ. We've been adopted into his family. And now, because we've been justified, the just shall live by faith. Let's pray.